page for today's obituaries. We have Mike Remus of Grimes, 69, passed away on May 22nd. Funeral services will be held at 12 p.m. on Saturday, May 27th, at McLaren's Rest Haven Chapel in West Des Moines. Visitation will begin at 10 a.m. until service time on Saturday. Cremation will follow services. To view a complete obituary and leave condolences for Mike's family, please visit McLaren's Rest Haven Chapel. Robert Brommel of West Des Moines, 64, passed away Sunday, May 21st, surrounded by his loving family at Mercy One Hospital in Des Moines. Visitation will be from 12 to 2 p.m. Tuesday, May 30th, at McLaren's Rest Haven Chapel in West Des Moines, with celebration of his life following at 2 p.m. Robert was born October 19, 1958, in Des Moines, to Therese Fontanini and Edward Joseph Brommel. He graduated from Martinsdale St. Mary's in 1977. Robert was a hard worker who loved his family and was always there for everyone. He enjoyed boating, watching his Hawkeyes, spending time fishing. Left to cherish his memory are his wife, Kelly, two sons, Jason and Tyler Brommel, mother, Therese, sisters, Debbie Brommel, Diane Wills, Suzanne Bunting, and Catherine Bonanno, and all his sisters and brothers-in-law, nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his father, Edward. Memorial contributions may be directed to the Brain Aneurysm Foundation in Hanover, Massachusetts. Lindy, excuse me, Linda R. Fincham, 85, of Iowa City, passed away Wednesday, May 17th, after a sudden illness. Linda Ray Lear was born February 9th, 1938, to E. Raymond and Frances Maynard Lear in Story City. Linda grew up the youngest of four sisters, moving from Jewel, where her dad had a small dairy farm, to Webster City after he was appointed sheriff of Hamilton County. She started her collegiate days at St. Olaf College before transferring to the University of Iowa, where she received a degree in nursing in 1960. Soon after, Linda met her future husband, Richard W. Fincham. They were married August 12, 1961, and settled in Iowa City. Linda was active in her University Heights community and enjoyed socializing with friends and neighbors quite often hosting impromptu gatherings with those who were passing by. Linda was known for her kindness, generosity, and interest in the lives of others. She enjoyed her Friday morning coffee group and was an active member of several bridge groups, PEO Chapter KQ, St. Andrew Presbyterian Church, along with numerous other activities. Linda is survived by her daughter, Nancy Fincham, and son, Ben Fincham, both of Iowa City, and son, David Fincham of Helena, Montana. Three granddaughters, Madeline and Grace of Iowa City, and Anna Linda of Helena, Montana, and sister Christine Benning of Des Moines. Linda was preceded in death by her parents, her husband Dick Fincham, and her sisters Sarah Belge and Martha Larson. A service will be held at St. Andrew Presbyterian Church, 140 Gathering Place Lane, Iowa City, on June 23rd at 5 p.m. with a celebration of life to follow. Linda will join Dick in a private family event at a later date. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to University Heights Community Fund, Community Foundation of Johnson County, or a charity of your choice. Online condolences may be sent to the family at lensingfuneral.com. We continue with our last obituary a little bit longer. This is Richard Lee Dick Thornton of Johnston, a loving husband, father, grandfather, and the founder of Barrick Refrigeration, he passed away on May the 20th at 90 years of age. 
Born on March the 3rd, 1933 in Colo, Dick was the youngest of five siblings born to Della Dickinson and Ralph Thornton. Growing up in a close-knit family, he learned the importance of love and support from an early age. Dick cherished his siblings, Verl, Veda, Velda, and Betty, maintaining a lifelong bond of friendship with them. During the Korean War, Richard bravely enlisted in the Navy, serving as a CV stationed in Guam. His dedication and commitment was unmatched. When he returned home from the Navy, Dick met the love of his life, Marlis Ruth Anderson. Within a few months, they tied the knot and embarked on a journey of love that lasted an incredible 64 years. Dick and Marlis were blessed with four wonderful children, Mark Thornton and wife Jan, Dawn Thornton Crow and husband Randy, Rick Thornton and Amy Thornton Zenner and husband Chad. As the years passed, their family blossomed with nine grandchildren, including Danielle, Michelle, Sarah, Marlissa, Dylan, Brian, Lindsay, Calvin, and Ellie, and six great-grandchildren, Addie, Ava, Adrian, Sasha, Nash, and Ford, adding more joy and laughter to their lives. Dick's love for his family was immeasurable, and he cherished every moment spent with them. Professionally, Dick was a force to be reckoned with. He completed his training as a plumber and steam fitter and dedicated years to commercial refrigeration. He proudly served as a plumber and steam fitter's local Union 33 member. However, his true legacy lies in the creation of Merrick Refrigeration. Alongside his sons, he built Merrick into one of the largest commercial refrigeration providers in the Midwest. Their success is a testament to Dick's unwavering work ethic, determination, and the tight bond they shared as a family. Dick's vibrant spirit extended far beyond his professional endeavors. As a frequent travel companion to his sister Betty and her husband Phil, Dick earned the playful nickname Pants on Fire. He simply couldn't sit still and relax. Even on vacation, he moved at top speed. Traveling was one of his greatest passions, and he created countless cherished memories exploring new destinations with his family. On their 35th anniversary, Dick and Marlis visited Aruba and instantly fell in love with the island. For 25 consecutive years, they returned every spring and found solace and joy in the company of their children and grandchildren while basking in the beauty of Aruba. In 1997, Marlis and Dick went on to find a winter home in Las Vegas and experienced great joy sharing their home with family and friends as they passed through. Dick was a wonderful host and was always willing to give his time and attention to friends and family. One of Dick's most endearing qualities was his ability to bring a smile to everyone's face. His infectious laughter and silly jokes lit up every room he entered. Richard Lee Thornton will forever be remembered as a kind, strong, and generous soul who profoundly impacted countless people's lives. His love and service continue to live on through his beloved family and the numerous friends he held dear to his heart. As we say goodbye to his, this extraordinary man, let us celebrate the love and joy he brought into our lives. 
Dick, thank you for the laughter, the memories, and the legacy of love you left behind. You will be deeply missed, but your spirit will forever live on in our hearts. Services will be held at Hamilton's on West Town Parkway, located at 3601 West Town Parkway in West Des Moines, on Friday, May the 26th, with visitation from 10 a.m. to noon and the service at noon. Burial will be at Colo Cemetery in Colo on Saturday, May 27th at 10 a.m. Okay, we're going to turn to the sports section. Our first article, Iowa Cubs pitching prospect Brown proves doubters wrong. This was written by Tommy Birch. Veteran baseball scout Larry Izzo wasn't sure what to expect as he settled in to watch a high school baseball game between Ward, Melville, and Longwood in New York in April of 2017. Izzo, a New York Mets scout, was told by Ward Melville coach Lou Petrucci to swing by that day's game scheduled to start early at 10 a.m. so he could get a glance at right-handed pitcher Ben Brown, who plays for the Iowa Cubs these days. Izzo was already, had already seen Brown in the fall when he was heaving fastballs in the low 80s. Petrucci promised this time would be different. So Izzo grabbed a seat behind home plate and locked his radar gun on Brown. He quickly saw what the high school coach meant. Brown started pumping 90-mile-per-hour fastballs into the catcher's mitt. Nine of Brown's pitched, touched at least 90 miles per hour. I saw a few innings, and I went over and said to Petrucci, You were right, Izzo said. Many college coaches had already given up on Brown after he ruptured his appendix. Petrucci had to beg college coaches to watch him pitch. Brown told Major League Baseball teams he'd do whatever it took to sign with them, but Brown eventually proved himself worthy of becoming not only a draft pick, but now a prized pitching prospect for the Chicago Cubs. Obviously, there's a little chip on your shoulder because I've been letting on myself. I'm excuse, excuse me, because I've been betting on myself my entire career, Brown said. But at the same time, I'm just going out there and competing and having fun. Every single school I was talking to stopped talking to me. Brown's potential is hard to miss early on. He checked in at six foot two as a sophomore, owned a high 80s fastball, and went 7-0 on Petrucci's varsity squad. Petrucci coached future MLB pitchers Stephen Matz and Anthony Kay and saw the same sort of upside in Brown. Even Matz, who returned to the high school to work out with some of the team's pitchers, was impressed. Stephen told him, he goes, you're going to get drafted out of here, Petrucci recalled. Brown was well on his way with college coaches, showing tons of interest at the end of his sophomore season. Brown said he had narrowed, <clears throat> had narrowed his choices down to five potential schools, but his career took an unexpected turn when he suffered the ruptured appendix three games into his junior season. Brown was confined to a hospital for seven days. He lost close to 30 pounds. The timing couldn't have been worse with Brown's recruiting heating up. When Brown got back on the mound, he wasn't the same. His mechanics were off, his velocity dipped, and attention he had been getting completely disappeared. Every single school I was talking to stopped talking to me, Brown said. Petrucci did his best to build interest in Brown, but it wasn't easy. He scheduled a trip to Georgia for the team to play and lined up some college coaches to see Brown throw. When Brown could only unleash fastballs in the low 80s, he noticed the coaches start to leave. The long list of offers he had been expecting to pour in during the start of his high school career never came. Instead, he only got one, from Siena. Even Izzo needed some convincing. The longtime scout had already seen Brown pitch before, 
and talked to the pitcher's parents about how he thought college was the best next step for him. But Izzo, who trusted Petrucci, was convinced by the coach to look at the pitcher again. Things were different this time around. Brown had grown. His velocity had returned. He looked like a completely different pitcher. Izzo walked around the side of the field during Brown's start to get different views of him. Everything he saw, he liked. Izzo was so impressed, he changed his evaluation. He thought Brown could be a pro right away. The only reason other teams started taking an interest in Brown was because of Izzo. As word got out that the well-respected scout was checking on Brown, others began to follow. When the other guys see Larry Izzo at a game, they all flock to the same game, Petrucci said. I, want, I watched it happen. The potential was there in Brown, but there were still concerns after all he'd been through. Not everyone was sold, and with Brown having only a short senior season to prove he had regained his form, not everyone was interested. Brown was desperate to be a pro, though. He let organizations know on every draft questionnaire that he filled out that he was willing to do whatever it took to sign. Brown, who didn't have an agent, told teams he didn't care what the dollar figure was. He would sign. I wanted to do what I could to play because I really believed I would be a major leaguer one day, Brown said. The Philadelphia Phillies came calling in the 33rd round. Brown was such a late draft pick that he found out on Twitter that he had been selected. An area scout called him shortly after. He eventually signed for what he called a lot less than slot. Brown, who had promised to sign for anything, was held to that. They sure took me up on that, Brown said with a laugh. Brown becomes a prized pitching prospect for the Chicago Cubs. Like his high school career, it took some time for Brown to gain some traction in the pros. He underwent elbow surgery in 2019 and didn't pitch in 2020 when the minor league baseball season was canceled due to COVID-19. Brown returned to the mound in 2021 and compiled a 1-0 mark with a 6.19 ERA in seven outings. The following season, he went 3-for-5 with a 3.08 ERA in 16 outings with Philadelphia's high A affiliate. It was enough to impress the Cubs scouts and analysts who saw tons of potential in his young arm, according to Jared Banner, Chicago's vice president of player development. They saw so much potential that Brown was the lone pickup for the Cubs when they dealt David Robertson to the Phillies. Brown's stuff continued to get better and better once he was able to log some innings after missing most of two years, Banner said. Brown got an apartment near the Cubs complex in Arizona during the offseason and made some big strides. He adjusted his arm action, a move that gave his fastball more ride, it also made it easier for Brown to throw his breaking balls for strikes. He also added a changeup and slider to his arsenal that already included a high 90s fastball and curveball. The changes led to huge success with Brown going 2-0 with a .45 ERA and 30 strikeouts in 20 innings with AA Tennessee before being promoted to Iowa. During his first outing with Iowa, Brown struck out 7 in 5.2 innings of work. Six days later, he tallied 10 strikeouts in five shutout innings. Just electric stuff as a starter, said Cubs pitcher Kyle Hendricks. Hendricks watched Brown throw in spring training and has gotten an up-close look at his stuff in AAA while rehabbing with Iowa this season. He's a big believer in the 23-year-old. He's going to be really good, Hendricks said. The success has made Brown one of the most coveted arms in the system with MLB Pipeline ranking him as the sixth best prospect in the organization, and third best pitcher. While it may be a shock to many who saw him early in his career, it's not a surprise to Brown. This is what he anticipated. 
I don't go out there trying to stick it to all the teams that passed on me, Brown said. I'm just more grateful that I had the opportunity to get drafted. In today's game, I wouldn't have even gone. My round doesn't exist anymore. Brown coincidentally wears number 33 with Iowa. That number, while fitting, just happened to be what he got assigned. But in a weird day, it's a constant reminder of what he's been through and how hard he's had to work to get to this point in his career. It's definitely something I'm proud of, Brown said. And that, again, was written by Tommy Birch, the Register's Sports Enterprise and Futures reporter. Randy. All right, I got my Iowa State sweatshirt on today, so I'm going to read the article on the Iowa State alum, Brock Purdy. He may be ready to start the 49ers 2023 opener. This article is written by Josh Dubal. He's an Associated Press writer. It's out of Santa Clara, California. San Francisco quarterback and Iowa State alum Brock Purdy is set to resume throwing next week, and the 49ers are optimistic he will be healthy enough after offseason elbow surgery to begin the season as the starter. Purdy was on the field watching his teammates on Tuesday at the Niners' first open practice of the offseason as he works his way back from the injury suffered in the NFC Championship game last season. Coach Kyle Shanahan said Purdy can start throwing a football next week for the first time since undergoing surgery on March the 10th and should be ready to practice in training camp and play when the season begins on September 10th in Pittsburgh. We're hoping for week one, and I feel pretty optimistic about that, Shanahan said. That's what we're hoping for. Usually that doesn't mean that's the day he comes back. Usually you have to come back before that to make that goal, and that's the goal we're hoping for. I have no reason to think differently. Purdy said his arm is feeling good nearly three months into his rehabilitation, and he is looking forward to resuming a throwing program next week, about a week earlier than the initial projections. But he's not ready to make uh, predictions about his return to game action. To say I'm going to be ready by this time or this time, we're not trying to label any kind of timeline like that. For sure, that's a goal, he said, of playing the opener. You want to be ready for the season. If that's the case, great. Purdy tore the ulnar collateral ligament in his right elbow on the first drive of a 31-7 loss in the NFC title game against Philadelphia on January 29th. He needed to wait more than a month to have surgery because of swelling in the elbow and now has been dealing with the grueling process of rehab and the unknowns about his recovery. It's my first time going through a rehab from a surgery and all that, he said. It's the off-season, so it is fine, doing the workouts and everything, getting back into it. But then once you see guys starting a practice and stuff like that and watching, it's like, man, you want to be out there for sure. That's just the competitive side of it. But I'm still able to watch the film and be in the meetings and learn and grow. Purdy went from the last pick of the draft to the starter in the conference title game in an impressive rookie season for the 49ers. He won his first seven starts before the loss to Philadelphia in the conference title game. Purdy threw for 1,374 yards with 13 touchdowns and only four interceptions in the regular season, and his 108 passer rating in the regular season and playoffs was the highest ever for a rookie with at least 200 passes. 
That performance led in general manager John Lynch calling him the leader in the clubhouse in terms of being the starter, even though San Francisco had made a hefty investment when the Niners traded up to draft Trey Lance third overall in 2021. Purdy said it would be foolish to put too much stock into those comments when there is so much work that needs to be done. We want to win a Super Bowl here. And that's a simple, as simple as that, he said. So for me, I just do my job and everything else falls into place. I'm just trying to be present. I'm not trying to get caught up in rumors or what people were saying or anything like that. The fact that they say that, for sure, I'm very appreciative. Lance spent most of his rookie season on the bench and went down with a season-ending ankle injury in week two last season, but is healthy now. With Purdy just a spectator, Lance has gotten the time with the first-team offense on the first two days of practice with free agent acquisition Sam Darno working with the second team. Shanahan said that will likely flip at some point as he tries to get both quarterbacks time with the starters. They've had two days, and I think they've done a great job, Shanahan said. We're just putting our base stuff in on offense and defense, and it has been uh, uh, two real good days for them. And here's a couple notes. Among the players not on um, hand for the voluntary workouts, it was uh, defensive end Nick Bosa, also a defensive tackle, Javon Hargrave, uh, left tackle Trent Williams, wide receiver Debo Samuel, and wide receiver Ray Ray McLeod, also cornerback Charvarius Ward and linebacker Dre Greenlaw were working only on the sidelines. Okay, our next story, the Caitlin Clark effect. Tickets go fast for Iowa Hoops doubleheader. This is by Chad Lestikow. Iowa basketball's return to downtown Des Moines became a red-hot ticket Wednesday morning, and in 90 minutes, Excuse me, and in a 90-minute blur, more than 13,000 tickets were gone. Needless to say, Wells Fargo Arena will be sold out on December 16th when the Iowa women face Cleveland State, a reigning 30-win team, and the Hawkeye men match up with Florida A&M. There were plenty of factors for the rapidly evaporating tickets, a chance to see both Hawkeye teams for one ticket in the state's largest city, carefully chosen price points to make the seats affordable to the general public, and the best women's player in college basketball. The Caitlin Clark effect is undeniable, Iowa Events Center General Manager Chris Connolly said Wednesday. Look, if you're a Hawkeye fan, what an opportunity. You can knock the competition, but the women's team just went to the national championship and came within a hair of winning the whole thing. When have we seen that? I don't know if there's a more popular person in women's sports than Caitlin. Clark, the reigning national player of the year and a sports megastar, is the obvious headliner as she gets a chance to play a college game in her hometown as an Iowa senior. The former star at Dowling Catholic High School tweeted on Wednesday, This will be a good time in one of my fave cities. Tickets are available on the secondary market already at marked up prices, of course. While currently available, inventory is gone for the event, Connolly stopped short of calling it a sellout. Wells Fargo Arena's capacity for the doubleheader double is around 14200 and he said a shade over 13,000 tickets have been sold. What about the other 1,200 or so tickets? Some of those could be released to the public in a few months. 
We have tickets on hold right now that will be processed at some point that will go to all four participating teams. The promoter has some tickets for sponsors. We have a handful in our back pocket for clients, Connolly said. That's about it. It went extremely fast today. Connolly credited event promoter Maury Hanks of Global Sports Management for seeking to make the price point affordable to fans. Various ticket prices were available from $30 in the upper level to $60 in the lower bowl end zones to $75 in the lower bowl sidelines to $100 or $150 near the court. Only a limited number of tickets were available in Tuesday's presale to the arena's cyber club. His goal in this event was to make it reasonably priced, which we totally think he did, Conley said. He could have priced this higher, but he did not want to do that. Tip-off times will be determined in the coming months. Considering the Iowa women's program, which ranked number two nationally in attendance last season behind South Carolina, and had nearly 13,000 season ticket requests for the 2023-24 season within weeks of Iowa falling in the NCAA title game to LSU, is the marquee attraction. Wouldn't it make sense for them to be the second game? Not necessarily, Connolly said. It's going to be dictated by TV. That's what Maury has said all along, he said. If it was his preference, he'd prefer to have a 4 o'clock tip and a 7 o'clock tip. Connolly knows there were frustrated fans that they got on line when tickets went on sale at 10 a.m. and still didn't purchase them. His explanation, demand was just off the charts. Some people were saying they got online at 10.02 and couldn't get a ticket, Connolly said. It doesn't work like that. We had so many people that got on the site. You have people that see a seat in the 100-level corner. They have seven or eight minutes to make that purchase, but because they're on until they either buy it or let it go, it shows it as unavailable. Bottom line, Wednesday's barrage of buyers showed that the Caitlin Clark Tour next winter is going to be a popular ticket. Randy? All right, I'm going to go to a couple really short articles in here. Butte College transfer quarterback Hughes commits to Iowa State. This is by Alyssa Hurdle. Iowa State football added another player to its quarterback room with the commitment of Butte College product Tanner Hughes, a source with direct knowledge of the situation, told the register. Hughes spent two seasons at Butte College. In his first year, he completed just 10 passes for 110 yards and two touchdowns. He threw two interceptions that season. This past season, Hughes completed 143 passes for 2,193 yards and 23 touchdowns while only throwing three interceptions. Hughes landed offers from Moorhead State and Duquesne based on his Twitter. The Cyclones offered him on May 20th, and he committed to Iowa State three days later. He is the fourth scholarship player in Iowa State's quarterback room for the 2023 season. It also includes Hunter Deckers, Rocco Beck, and J.J. Cole. Two-time national finalist Feller, I think that's how it's pronounced, it's F-O-E-L-L-E-R, joins Iowa women's wrestling. This is written by Cody Goodwin. Clarissa Chun began building the Iowa women's wrestling program with high-profile recruiting victories. Now she's loading up with even more talent through the transfer market. The latest move came on Tuesday when the program announced the addition of J.C. Feller, a Missouri native and two-time collegiate national finalist in 2022 with NCAA Power McKendry, then again last season with NAIA's Central Methodist. In two collegiate seasons, Feller is a combined 37-7 and 7 overall at 191 pounds 
She is 13 and one in 2021 and 2022 for McKendry, where she was teammates with Felicity Taylor, another former Bearcat who's now at Iowa. And then 24 and six for Central Methodist in 2022 and 2023. She has two years of eligibility left and will contend right away for NCAA supremacy. Prior to her stellar college career, Feller was a star for DeSoto Senior High School in Missouri, where she went 121-0, so she went undefeated, and won three state titles. She was also a two-time women's freestyle All-American, finishing third at 180 pounds at the Cadet National Tournament in 2019, and then fifth at 180 at the Junior National Championships in 2021. Feller is the latest big-time transfer ad for the Iowa women's wrestling program. Just last month, Marlin Deed, a 2023 national champ for Augsburg, announced plans to transfer in. Ahead of the 2022-23 season, both Taylor and Nania Estrella, as well as Aneka Vesco and Sierra Brown, ton, transferred to Iowa after starting their college careers elsewhere, Taylor at McKendry and Estrella at NAIA's Menlo College. Iowa's initial 15-woman roster redshirted during the 22-23 season and will begin competing in the 23-24 season. With these big-time transfers coupled with the string of recruiting victories through its first two signing classes, the Hawkeyes are poised to field a lineup that will immediately contend for an NCAA team championship. Okay, I'm going to turn to boys high school golf um, with an article by Joe Randleman. Javorski shoots record score at T2A state meet. Washington's Roman Roth kept his cool, changed things up a bit, and stepped up on the tougher holes to bring home an individual state championship at the Class 3A Boys Golf Meet held Monday and Tuesday at the Vinker Memorial Golf Course in Ames. Roth shot a one-under par score of 143 over 36 holes to win the meet in convincing fashion. He beat MOC Floyd Valley's Davis Corver by eight strokes for 3A state medalist. It feels pretty good, Roth said. It gives me a little confidence. Roth shot a 73 over the first 18 holes Monday, then shaved three strokes off that score Tuesday. He picked up an eagle on hole 10, which was a par 5, and also birdied two more par 5s in holes 7 and 9 during Tuesday's competition. I think the par 5s really helped me, Roth said. Par 3s I kind of struggled with, but later on I started playing a little better. Switching clubs a few times also helped. I hit my driver on some I probably shouldn't have hit driver, Roth said. It worked out. The driver treated me well this week. Roth placed 7th at State on the same course a year ago. He is just a junior, so he will get another crack at Vinker and a possible repeat championship in 2024. I'm going to play some summer golf tournaments and see where it takes me, Roth said. The other golfers besides Roth and Corver, who scored a 151, to medal in 3A were Solon's Jack McCarty, who scored a 153, MOC Floyd Valley's Carson Corver at 154, Clear Creek Amana's Zachary McCarty, a 156, Gilbert's Zachary Wilson, 156, and Knoxville's Kale Arkema, 156. In team competition, 
MOC Floyd Valley ended Gilbert's two-year reign atop 3A. The Dutchman shot a 629, scoring a 319 on the first day and cutting nine strokes off that score Tuesday. The Dutchman beat Knoxville by 14 strokes for the championship. Gilbert came in third with a score of 645. I'm just very thankful, MOC Floyd Valley coach Brady Baker said. You've got to have great parents, and you've got to have really good players, and you've got to play well at the right time. We're excited. The Corvers led the way for the Dutchman. Cody Brenneman placed 14th with a 159, and Jackson Vandenbosch tied for 21st with a 165 to complete the scoring for MOC Floyd Valley. Grundy Center freshman Judd Jarofsky sets record in 2A meet. Judd Jarofsky made quite a big impression during his first state golf meet. The Grundy Center freshman won medalist at the 2A state meet with a record-setting performance. Jarofsky shot an amazing 11 under par over the two days, finishing with a 131 to set the all-time 36-hole record. Jarofsky wins the meet by an impressive 11 strokes over Odebolt Arthur, Battle Creek Ida Groves, Axton Miller, who shot a 142. The other 2A medalists were Olwine's Brandon Turnier, a 143, Beckman Catholic's Luke Harwick, 144, East Marshall's Cody Weaver, 145, Hudson's Caleb Ham, 148, Tipton's Tristan Sorgenfree, a 149, and Beckman Catholic's Nathan Offerman, a 149. Jarofsky's dominant performance helped Grundy Center cruise to the 2A team championship. The Spartans shot a 597 as a team to beat Beckman Catholic, 6-11, and Hudson at 6-18 for first. Mike E. Takis, Keith Thompson, pace 1A field. Regina Catholic's Mikey Takis won a sudden victory playoff against Hamburg freshman Keith Thompson for medalist at the 1A state meet held at the Ames Golf and Country Club in Ames. Takis and Thompson both shot a 148 over the two days. Galen Catholic's Dawson Barthol was third with a 152, Cam's Chase Jotty took third with a 153, and Montezuma's McGuire DeJong and North Butler's Nolan Reiser tied for fifth place with 154. There was a three-way tie for seventh with West Fork's Sage Sundkin, East Buchanan's Ben Hessner, and Hillcrest Academy's Rowan Miller, each carding a 156. Hillcrest Academy won the 1A team title with a 650. West Fork pushed the Ravens hard before settling for second with a 655, and Kingsley Pearson was third with 660. All righty, I'm going to the Iowa Life and what's going on this Memorial Day weekend in Des Moines. It offers celebration and wild lights. Okay, you can pick up some produce, first of all, at a farmer's market. That's on third, well, this afternoon. Get ready for the holiday weekend by picking up some fresh produce and baked goods at the Polk City Farmer's Market. Shoppers can find arts and crafts, clothing, plants, and more, as well as a free musical performance in the historical bandstand. You can head to the Town Square, which is located at 107 South 3rd Street in Polk City from 4 to 7 p.m. And then on Friday afternoon, soak in some Asian culture. The Iowa Asian Alliance rolls out a cornucopia of flavors when celebration returns. Head to 1205 Locust Street in Des Moines from 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. and Saturday too 
to taste cuisine from China, Thailand, Japan, Vietnam, Nepal, Laos, India, Cambodia, and more. Stop by the free festival, but food and drink cost money, though, at 4 p.m. for Jomari Falarka from Season 2 of I Can See Your Voice. Also, ukulele specialist Andrew Hoyt will be there at 4.30 p.m., or the Des Moines Breakers will be there at 7.30 p.m. among the roster of entertainment. You can see the Wild Lights Festival. That is Friday night. Grab the kids and see giant pandas, an enormous octopus, cheerful sunflowers, and big bumblebees at the Blank Park Zoo's Wild Lights Festival. The event features 50 handmade, larger-than-life, illuminated, animal-shaped lanterns, including a 75-foot-long sunflower tunnel, and a giant 33-foot-wide octopus from 7.30 to 10 p.m. Tickets for the festival, which is located at 7401 Southwest 9th Street in Des Moines, range from $19 to $25 online. Also takes place on Wednesdays through Saturdays through May the 29th. Eat pizza and drink wine. This is Friday night. Get out into the country, snag $2 off wines and a wood-fired pizza at Madison County Winery located at 3021 St. Charles Road in St. Charles during happy hour from 4 to 6 p.m. Pizza is served from 5 to 8 p.m. and the tasting room stays open until 10 p.m. You can go to a rave with Shrek. That is Saturday night. Do you need to know more than there's a Shrek rave at Woolies? Expect crazy Shrek performers. I'm a believer. Sing-alongs. Shrek visuals. Shrek giveaways. And Shrek-themed drinks. Yes, you should come dressed as your favorite Shrek character. The East Village Music Venue at 504 East Locust Street in Des Moines gets the party going at 9 p.m. Tickets Start at $25. You can see CeeLo Green perform. That is on Saturday night. Kick off summer early at Adventureland Park this Memorial Day weekend. The Altoona theme park is making an even bigger splash for the holiday weekend with a special concert featuring Atlanta's own singer, songwriter, and hip-hop artist CeeLo Green. The five-time Grammy Award-winning entertainer and former coach on NBC's The Voice, will perform at 6.30 p.m. Admission to the concert is included with a ticket to the park that day. The singer is probably best known for his single with Gnarls Barkley called Crazy and his solo single, F.U. Okay, we go to Sunday morning. Go Southern with brunch at Bubba. Donna Straw Hat, a seersucker suit, and a bow tie, and drop by Bubba, located at 210th Street in Des Moines, for brunch with a Southern Flair on Saturdays and Sundays from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. Dig into dishes such as chicken and waffles, a smothered skillet with hash browns topped with two eggs, sausage, crumbles, and country gravy, or a mashed potato bomb with bacon, white cheddar cheese, and gravy, topped with an over-easy egg. 
order white cheddar grits or a cinnamon roll on the side, or just go for deviled eggs or a stack of apple cinnamon silver dollar buckwheat pancakes to share. It's making me hungry. Uh, lazy Lays away the day with a free concert and wine. This is on Sunday afternoon. Dick Danger Band takes over the Somerset Winery, which is located at 15101 Fairfax Street in Indianola from 2 to 5 p.m. for a free concert. Weather permitting, of course, the concert takes place outside. The funky six-piece band plays Top 40 and R&B. And again, that is on Sunday afternoon. Teresa? Okay, I'm going to jump to Sports Extra and read an article here, a tennis article, about Rafael Nadal's absence stings at French Open by Howard Fendrick. There's a reason a statue of Rafael Nadal stands outside Court Philippe Ch Chartier on the southwest outskirts of Paris. No player ever lorded over any Grand Slam tennis tournament the way Nadal has ruled the French Open, winning it year after year after year for a read-it-again-to-make-sure total of 14 times. It is impossible to overstate what a monumental development is that Nadal's name will be absent from the bracket when play begins Sunday. <clears throat> the last time they held the clay court major without him... Back in 2004, back before women and men received equal prize money there, before the main stadium was reconstructed with a retractable roof, before night sessions were added to the schedule. Him and Roland Garros is something special, said Coco Goff, the 19-year-old Floridian who was the runner-up to Iga Swatek for the 2022 women's title in Paris. I remember last year, I made the mistake of doubting him. Next thing you know, he pretty much stormed his way to the final and won in straight sets. Then, using the now familiar acronym for greatest of all time, Goff continued, he's just a goat in that way, a goat on clay, someone you can't underestimate. Every man in the field, well, every realistic and honest man, knew there was one player to avoid in the draw, and they all knew it was almost certain that Nadal would leave France with yet another coup de mousquetaires. His career record at Roland Garros, 112-3. He's obviously always going to be the favorite, said Casper Ruud, the Norwegian who was the runner-up to Nadal last year, if he plays. He won't play this time. Nadal, who turns 37 on June 3rd, ruled himself out last week with a hip flexor injury that sidelined him since January. His aim is to return to Paris in 2024 for what probably would be his last French Open. Roland Garros will always be Roland Garros, with or without me, Nadal said, without a doubt. Perhaps, really though, no tennis event and athlete are linked quite the way this event and this athlete are. So the question becomes, who takes the advantage of his absence? Will it be the wonderkind, considered an heir apparent, Carlos Alcaraz, who won the U.S. Open in September at age 19, finished last season ranked number one, and just returned to that spot? What about Novak Djokovic, who owns two victories against Nadal at the French Open and two titles of his own at the place? Or Daniil Medved, coming off his first clay title? Or Hogel Rune, who's beaten Djokovic twice in a row? I see it may be more open this year than the other years, Rune said. It's interesting. It makes it more fun. The stakes for Djokovic are obvious. A championship would be his 23rd at a slam breaking a tie with Nadal for the men's record. 
As it is, the 36-year-old from Serbia has won 10 of the past 19 major trophies. Nadal collected a half a dozen in that span, while three men claimed one apiece, all at the U.S. Open, Alcaraz, Medved, and Dominic Thiem. For quite a while, folks have been wondering when the big three would give way to the next group. Roger Federer retired last year. Nadal appears close to joining him. Djokovic is still thriving, although he did deal with discomfort in his surgically repaired right elbow lately. A new generation is here already. I mean, Alcaraz is number one in the world. Obviously, he's playing amazing tennis. I think it's also good for our sport that we have new faces, new guys coming up. It's normal. We've been saying this for years, that we can expect it to come, that moment to come, when you kind of shift of, when you have kind of a shift of generations, Djokovic said. I'm personally still trying to hang in there with all of them. I'm happy with, of course, very happy with my career so far, he said. I still have the hunger to keep going. That sort of desire exists for Nadal, too. He just could not will his hip to heal quickly enough. It will be odd to hold a French Open without him. Odd for the tournament itself, for other players, for spectators, and odd for him. With everything that the tournament means to me, you can imagine how difficult this is for me, Nadal said. It is not a decision I make. It is a, it is a decision that my body has made. All right, I'm going to... Uh do a really short article, again, from the local sports. Uh, DMAC wins first game of World Series 8-3 to versus RVC, which is Rock Valley College. Sophomores Kendall Clark and Maddie Kearns and freshman Amaya Snyder drove in two runs apiece to lead the DMAC softball team to an 8-3 win over Rock Valley College in the first round of the National Junior College Athletic Association Division II World Series on Tuesday at Spartanburg, South Carolina. The Bears, who are seeded 10th, topped the number seven seeded Golden Eagles to improve to 50 wins and 10 losses on the season. Uh, Rock Valley fell to 44 wins and 11 losses. Sidney Kennedy pitched six and one-third innings and improved to 23 wins and four losses. She allowed three runs on 10 hits, struck out five, and walked two. Freshman Courtney Donahue closed out the win by retiring the only two batters she faced. DMAC was set to face the number two seed, Lewisburg College. Uh, that was on Wednesday, so I don't know uh, that game's over with now, so we'll find out a little bit more, I'm sure, uh, when sports comes out. They usually run a little bit late. I'm going to go through the standings in the Major League Baseball um, to cover a little time before we go to Dear Abby. Uh in the American League right now, Tampa Bay is on top of the East Division with an overall record of 35-15. and 15. They're ahead of the Baltimore Orioles. The Orioles are three games back of Tampa Bay. The Yankees come in third place with a 30-20 record and a five-game deficit. Also, Boston in fourth place. They're eight and a half back, as is Toronto. It's the best division of the six in Major League Baseball from a record standpoint. In the Central Division of the American League, the Minnesota Twins lead. They're only a game over 500, but they still lead the league. It is the worst division in baseball. Detroit is in second place, two and a half back. Cleveland is three and a half back. Chicago White Sox are five and a half back. And the Kansas City Royals bring up the rear. They're ten and a half back with a record of 15 wins and 35 losses, 20 under 500. And the West Division of the American League, Texas leads the league. They're at 30 and 18. 
Houston Astros are in second place, two back. Last, La, the Los Angeles Angels are four back. Seattle Mariners are six back. And the Oakland A's with the worst record in baseball, 21 behind Texas. They have 10 wins and 40 losses. Over in the National League, the Atlanta Braves in the Eastern Division are on top with a 29-19 and 19 record. The New York Mets are four and a half games out. The Miami uh, Ball Club is five and a half back. The Phillies from Philadelphia, seven back. Washington brings up the rear at nine back. In the Central Division, where the Chicago Cubs and the St. Louis Cardinals dwell, and it is the second worst division in baseball, Milwaukee Brewers are on top. The Pittsburgh Pirates are only one game back in second place. The Cubs come in third place at four and a half back. The Cardinals have gotten red hot lately. They were in last place, but they're now up to fourth place. They're only five back of the Brewers, and in last place is the Cincinnati Reds at six games out. And finally, in the West Division, the Los Angeles Dodgers lead that division with a 31-19 and record. They are followed by the Arizona Diamondbacks. They're one and a half back. The San Francisco Giants are six out. The San Diego Padres, a big surprise in the wrong direction. They're eight back. And the Colorado Rockies round out that division. They're nine and a half games behind the Los Angeles Dodgers. Okay, we're a couple minutes early, but we're going to start Dear Abby. Aging man's antics and ego make him hard to be around. Dear Abby, my narcissistic father feels entitled to do whatever he pleases. He has always insisted that since he makes the money, far more than my mother's income, he should be waited on and cleaned up after. If he stays in my home, he leaves messes everywhere. He's 70, but he acts like a four-year-old. He loves attention and will do anything to be the center of it, whether it's wearing a kilt or showing off his intellectual prowess. I have no relationship with him, and I'm okay with that. Mom complains constantly about him and then defends him. It's emotionally exhausting. My husband, our kids, and I are appalled at his lack of self-awareness, empathy, or caring. He makes going on vacation a nightmare. He feels that if he does all the driving, then he's done his part and refuses to help with anything else. He is difficult and manipulative. He's getting worse as he gets older, and I no longer want to subject my family to this. My mother doesn't seem to understand this. How do I deal with a narcissistic father and a mother who refuses to acknowledge it and constantly makes excuses for him? And that was from Exasperated in Pennsylvania. Dear Exasperated, one way to deal with it would be to stop taking vacations with them, since the vacations seem to be anything but pleasant for you and your family. Try to avoid him as often as you can. When your mother complains about dad, Point out that this is the prize she married and you are tired of hearing her complain since she won't assert herself. Then change the subject when she brings it up. Our next letter, Dear Abby, My brother is emerging from a painful two-year-long divorce, during which his two teenage daughters and one grown daughter became estranged from him. His now ex-wife overshared with them during the divorce and did everything she could to prevent them from seeing him, despite court orders for him to have joint custody, visitation, and therapy. My brother isn't perfect, but he loves his girls and wants them in his life. He's slowly making progress with one of his minor daughters. 
My problem is his ex has caused them to shun the rest of their paternal relatives. My two sisters, their aunts, and I are pained by the loss of those relationships. We still reach out at holidays and birthdays with texts, gifts, and well wishes, but we receive no response, not even a polite thank you. Because we stood by our brother during a terrible experience, we are guilty by association. Should we continue reaching out or leave them alone until they are ready to have a relationship with us again? And that was from Victim of Divorce. Abby says, Dear Victim, I don't think you should continue sending gifts that go unacknowledged. However, leave the lines of communication open by sending cards to your nieces on appropriate occasions. If you haven't discussed this with your brother, I recommend you do and take your lead from him. And that was Dear Abby. Thanks, Teresa. Now we'll go to our weather forecast. Uh, looks like a good one for several days. Today, partly sunny and nice. Winds out of the east-southeast, 8 to 16 miles per hour. Expected high is 77 degrees. Tonight, it'll be clear. The winds will be east to southeast at 7 to 14 miles per hour, a low of 51. So we don't need air conditioning and we don't need the furnace on either. <laughs> on Friday, sunny and nice again, 79 for a high, 52 for a low. We start to warm up just a little bit on Saturday. We get into the low 80s. It'll be sunny again with a high of 81, a low of 55. Sunday, again, we get a little warmer. Again, it'll be sunny, but it'll be a hazy sun on Sunday, a high of 84, a low of 61. We really start to heat up early next week into the low to mid-80s. It'll be 85 on Monday and partly sunny, 86 on Tuesday, a thunderstorm possible that day, and then 84 on Wednesday. Again, thunderstorms are possible. The sunrise today was at 547 a.m., the sunset at 836 p.m., moonrise today at 1046 a.m., and the moonset at 121 a.m. The extremes, yesterday we got all the way up to 91 in Vinton but we got down to 44 in Elkader. Precip, currently we're about two inches below normal. The normal is 12.7 inches. We're at 10.86 inches, which is very comparable to last year when we were at 11.02 inches. That concludes the reading of the Des Moines Register for Thursday, May the 25th. I'm Randy Vogel, and my partner at the microphone has been Teresa Whitaker. Earlier, you heard Linda Lundgren and Twyla Glenn. You can access IRIS programs on any computer, smartphone, mobile device, or smart speaker like the Amazon Echo or Google Home. If you would like to learn more, just give us a call at 243-6833 or toll-free at 1-877-404-4747. Or check out our website, iowaradioreading.org. A special thanks to our broadcast partners, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and our music partner, bensound.com. But most of all, thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. Music.